It's Friday, July 19th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump informed reporters on Thursday that the USS Boxer, operating in the Strait of Hormuz, shot down an Iranian drone after it had approached and closed within a threatening range. Tension had been unfolding in the Strait of Hormuz, which provides passage for about one-fifth of the world's oil every day. In recent weeks, it had been suspected that Iran seized a tanker from the UAE and also tried to stop a British vessel. Dave Lawler, world news editor for Axios, joins us for the details. Next, we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing on July 20th. It was an incredible feat that had not been accomplished before and was the result of eight years of work by more than 400,000 people and cost billions of dollars. While this was a huge achievement, there was some uncertainty that the landing would happen because of an error code that triggered an alarm and some worry. Dr. Lance Elliott, AI expert and contributor to Forbes, joins us to tell the story within the story about the Apollo 11 moon landing and the lessons we can learn from it 50 years later. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The boxer took defensive action against an Iranian drone, which had closed into a very, very near distance, approximately 1,000 yards, ignoring multiple calls to stand down and was threatening the safety of the ship and the ship's crew. The drone was immediately destroyed. Joining us now is Dave Lawler, Axios World News Editor. Thanks for joining us, Dave. Great to be with you. The president told reporters on Thursday that the USS Boxer, which is operating out of the Strait of Hormuz, had shot down an Iranian drone. He said that it approached within a thousand yards of the ship and ignored calls to stand down. What do we know about this? This is kind of an ongoing thing with increasing tensions with Iran right now. Right. So the Pentagon is saying this was a defensive maneuver by the warship that this drone approached within an unsafe and threatening distance. And so the ship opened fire on it. Uh, But the the explanation we got from President Trump is that it came close. They shot it. They totally destroyed it. And if they threaten further U.S. personnel, similar results will ensue. Now, I know the details are still early, but we don't know if this drone had uh, any type of firearms on it or if it was just like a surveillance type of drone. I haven't seen any details yet on what exactly this drone's capabilities were. As I mentioned, this has been an ongoing string of increasing tensions with Iran, especially there on the Strait of Hormuz. Everything has kind of been happening there. I think a fifth of the world's oil travels through there every single day. So this is a a very important location. Tell us what else Iran has been involved with. There's uh, some tankers that have been seized. They tried to seize a UK uh, boat at one point, I think. There's been a lot of stuff going on. Right, exactly. So first, the UK intercepted a ship carrying Iranian oil, they said, to Syria. Essentially, in response for that, Iran, according to the UK, tried to seize a UK vessel and the UK Navy responded and and prevented that from happening. More recently, we saw a UAE tanker go off the grid as it was traveling through the Strait of Hormuz. Now Iran says they have intercepted 
a foreign tanker. And so um, they're basically sending a warning that under this maximum pressure situation, they have a lot of capabilities to disrupt the supply of oil coming through the Strait of Hormuz. And um, there continues to be these, ex- you know, these escalations in that area as Iran sort of seeks to change the dynamic here, whereby their economy is being strangled, their oil is being kept from being exported. They're trying to essentially force the world to uh, reckon with them. And so they're doing it by by um, these provocations in the Strait. Yeah, uh, this all started with the U.S. backing out of the Iran nuclear deal. And we know that those sanctions have been very punishing on the economy there in Iran. And they want to sell their oil. And they've, according to the AP, said they've threatened to stop oil tankers passing through the Strait if they can't sell their own oil abroad. So this is really where, as you were mentioning, trying to change the dynamic with it. They keep fighting, obviously, for the easing of sanctions. They were trying to work with Europe on some type of new nuclear deal. Has there been any movement on that? Because the last time I heard, they were increasing their uranium enrichment and they were also refining that uranium also past what they should have been doing, according to the Iran nuclear deal. Right. So Iran is basically prodding the world on two fronts, right? One is what we just talked about in the Strait of Hormuz. The other one is that they're slowly creeping out of the 2015 nuclear deal. They're breaking some of the limits on on uranium there. And so that's a warning essentially to the Europeans and the other parties to the deal that if you don't find a way to help our economy and give us the kind of benefits we expected when we signed this deal back in 2015, then we are going to get rid of these limits on our nuclear program and we're going to continue to make life difficult for you. So the Europeans are attempting to mediate. They're trying to get some sort of economic benefit to the Europeans without making their companies subject to U.S. sanctions. It's an incredibly tricky scenario, and we haven't really seen the kind of breakthrough that gives the Iranians confidence that they don't need to take this kind of action. Going back to the action on the Strait of Hormuz, they're saying that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard were their forces were the ones that were seizing these oil tankers and these 12 crew members that they say were smuggling oil. In reference to the drone, does the Iranian Revolutionary Guard control these drones also, or is this the Iran military at large? Right. So the ships, the, the, the small attack vessels that have been interfering in the Strait of Hormuz are affiliated with the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. I must admit, I don't actually know who controls the drones in Iran. It's not a question I've, I've had to consider before today. Um, so so that's, that's a new one for me. I, I don't actually know the answer to that. I know that the Guard does control the ballistic missiles. You know, I was just wondering if there's a correlation there, but the president is trying to get a coalition of countries to defend the area. Has there been any movement on that? So there's going to be a forum later this year on maritime security in the Gulf. That is really too late for what's happening now. So so they, what they're trying to do, the Pentagon is trying to bring together some allied countries, especially Gulf countries. European countries as well, to sort of get some system in place that would allow ships traveling through the strait and through the area to have more confidence that they'll pass through safely. Trump has actually said, look, this oil isn't going to the United States. It's going to Asia. Uh, A lot of it's going to China. And so these countries should be stepping up and making sure that there's maritime security in this area. It's not just a United States concern. And so they're trying to internationalize that effort There have been no official pronouncements so far about a new international plan on that front, but there have been some meetings. Dave Lawler, Axios World News Editor, thank you very much for joining us. 
Thank you. Okay, all flight controllers, go to go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Econ. Go. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle Houston, you're go for landing. Over. Roger, understand. Go for landing. 3,000 feet. Copy. Alarm. 1201. 1201. Roger, 1201. Same type, we're go, flight. Okay, we're go. We're go, same type, we're go. Joining us now is Dr. Lance Elliott, expert on artificial intelligence and autonomous vehicles and a contributor to Forbes. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Elliott. Great to be here. Thanks, Oscar. 50 years ago, astronauts Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong took the first steps on the moon. We're celebrating the 50-year anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing on July 20th. And we, we know those iconic words, that's one small step for men, one giant leap for mankind. I mean, it has to be one of the greatest achievements that we have accomplished as human beings. And we're getting ready to do it all over again, as a matter of fact. The U.S. is planning to send astronauts back to the moon by 2024, four years earlier than initially planned. This whole thing with Apollo 11 was worked on by more than 400,000 people, billions of dollars. And... There's you wrote this great article for Forbes about this very little known uh, hiccup, uh, kind of crazy moment of tension where right before the astronauts were going to be landing on the moon, there was a couple of error codes that kept going off. And because, as usual, when you practice something, it's always going to be something you didn't practice. These error codes were very little known to everybody and was freaking everybody out. Tell us about this little known story about the Apollo 11 moon landing. Sure. Well, uh, tagging along on your point about the famous utterance uh, when Neil stepped onto the moon, there's perhaps a second utterance, maybe not quite as as popular as that one, but one that most people know, which is the eagle has landed. Right. And the eagle was the name of the lunar lander that they landed on the moon. Uh, so what actually happened, it, most people aren't quite aware, if you listened closely to the recorded chatter between Neil, uh, Buzz, Aldrin, and Mission Control, you can hear in there something rather frightening that happened that to millions upon millions of Americans that, and uh, those around the world that were listening, probably they didn't really pay much attention to because it sounded like a lot of technical jargon. And what it consisted of was that about seven and a half minutes left to go on the final descent there appeared on the display a flashing 1202-1202 error code that also set off a blaring alarm. And you could hear the astronauts, there was kind of a moment of silence on their side, and then they asked Mission Control, it's a 1202, which really was more of a question than a statement per se, because the astronauts themselves had never seen that error code before. <laughs> In all the practices they'd done, all the training that they had done, it was not an error code that had ever been purposely brought to their attention, so therefore they were mystified. 1202. 1202 alarm. The 1202. Standing by. Give us a reading on the 1202 should you immediately take action? Should you wait to take action? And all of it meaning that as you now are descending, something's gone awry, but you don't know what it is. And it was so bad that there was a danger that they might have scrapped the landing. Uh, by some stories that I've been seeing, there was 27 seconds 
that went by before anybody said anything back. And in a moment like this, so critical, as you said, it was had never been done before. I mean, 27 seconds, it could be a lifetime right there, not knowing what to expect. Well, you're absolutely right. With those seconds that were clicking off, what kind of happened there, too, is that the astronauts said to Mission Control, hey, 1202, what's that? So they had to repeat. Now, what they had done is they had established a bunch of NASA engineers in a back room so that that way, if something came up that was unknown or unexpected, that they had a chance that those NASA engineers might either know about it or could try to figure something out. So what had happened in those seconds, precious seconds that were winding away, the NASA engineers in the back room were trying to also figure out what was going on. And fortunately, one of them had written down beforehand all the different error codes and looked on this handwritten chart that they had to see what the 1202 error code was about. Wow. That is so crazy. So these two, it was a 1202 and a 1201. They were kind of paired up together. I guess one was a result of the other. Tell us what these error codes were doing. I mean, how was it going to impact the impending landing? Sure. So the 1202 error code, and then you're right, there was also a 1201 error code. Both of those error codes relate essentially to the same topic, which is that the memory inside the main onboard computer that was on the lunar lander, and you have to put yourself back 50 years. This is not a equivalent of a today's laptop or smartphone. This was a fraction of that in terms of the kind of capability and the amount of memory that it had. The memory of that onboard computer, which was being used to help guide them during the landing on the moon, the memory was overfilling. Now, the 1202 or 1201 error code simply said memory is being overfilled. It didn't tell them why it was. And even the NASA engineer that knew what that error code meant, which was the memories overfilling, they didn't know either. But what they had done, the programmers had anticipated that someday, for some reason, which they didn't know what that would necessarily be, that the onboard computer might get too filled up in the memory. And so what they had done is they had written an automatic little routine that would kick in and do a fast reboot. So it's like rebooting your smartphone or your right. laptop, except it's a very fast way to do it. And what happened is the NASA engineer decided, well, we don't know what's causing this. We know that it's a memory being filled up, but we also know that the fast reboot generally should fix for the moment, whatever the problem is. So he indicated that they should proceed with the moon landing. Oh and that's gosh. then what the Capcom communicated back. They said, you're a go, meaning continue on and essentially ignore that error. It makes me so nervous just listening to this because if you know, you're working on your computer and the RAM is filled up and what happens, everything slows down, everything's so sluggish. And you know, I, I, that's the only thing I can think of to relate to this. The computer system is approaching to land and what's going to happen. And then to do a fast reboot, I mean, obviously the equivalents are not there, but if you turn your phone off and you turn it back on, it's going to take a little while. So even this fast reboot, I'm just nervous thinking about it, how harrowing it might have been for the astronauts there during that time. You actually spoke to Buzz Aldrin at some point and you asked him about this. 
Uh, yes, that's indeed the case. Buzz was making a visit to Los Angeles, and I picked him up at the airport, and we had lunch together. And I just had to ask what was in his mind and so on. He said, of course, at first he was quite concerned. This is an error code he hadn't seen before that was blaring at him. Uh, they knew that with each second that went by that their options of what they could do about it were narrowing. Uh, so that was what was on his mind. But as soon as he got the go from or go ahead or proceed from uh, mission control, he figured, okay, I don't obviously need to think about that now. I've got a hundred other things to think about. And then when the error reoccurred, which it did a couple additional times, including the 1201 error, he just took it naturally to, to be that he should continue to just ignore the error, kind of clear out the error and continue on. Now, the twist of it is, a few days later, they figured out what had caused the problem. Would you like to know what actually was the root cause of this? Yeah, of course. What happened? So what happened was the radar unit that they had on the lunar lander, which they had not really used before. Remember, we had never landed on the moon before. Well, unbeknownst to kind of everyone, the radar unit had a kind of bug or fault or error in it that what it did is it repeatedly tried to communicate with the onboard computer and say, hey, you've got to load in my software into the memory. And it did this over and over and over. It was only supposed to do it once and then just sit there in memory and be used. But because of this bug or error, it repeatedly did that. So that's why the memory then filled up. That's what generated the 1202 and the 1201 error. And that's also why they made a decision, a split second gutsy decision down there on Earth to go ahead and ignore it because they hope whatever it was, <laughs> wow. the fast reboot would quote, clear it up. That is an amazing story. And I had never seen that before, heard of that before. You are an expert on artificial intelligence and autonomous vehicles. And part of what you did in your article for Forbes, you wrote about, you know, lessons learned from this, even 50 years on when this is one of our next big things that we're trying to undertake, autonomous vehicles, self-driving cars, and these cars are loaded up with a bunch of different radars, different things. Possibility of something like this being overloaded could happen again. Uh, just briefly tell us how this applies to what we're doing now with our current technology. Yeah, I think many readers were surprised when I said that this applies 50 years later because we all know how hardware has changed. You know, there's massive amounts of memory now. The hardware processors are much faster than they were by far back then and so on. But if you kind of shift your angle a little bit and think about the software side of it, it could very well happen that, for example, on a self-driving or driverless car, some call them autonomous cars, because it is chock full of radar units, cameras, LIDAR, which is a combination of light and radar, uh, and other sensors, ultrasonic and so on. So one of the things that I wanted to just bring up to, to make automakers, tech firms, and others, you know, to kind of be aware of and think about is that's a lesson learned from 50 years ago. Think about the way in which even modern-day sensors and modern-day computers could be harassed, in a sense, by a faulty device that decides it's going to repeatedly try to ping or bump away at the AI system and potentially distract the AI system or interrupt it from its primary task. Yeah, I mean, it's really incredible to think about. I mean, it's something similar what we went through with the Boeing MAX planes with that faulty radar, and that's possibly what caused those planes to crash. And it's very much a lesson learned, like as we've been saying, as far back as 50 years ago with this Apollo 11 moon landing. Dr. Lance Elliott, expert on artificial intelligence, autonomous vehicles, contributor to Forbes. Thank you very much for sharing that story with us. Thank you so much. 
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Brooke Peterson and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.